Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. I grew up around church. I know some of you didn't. Um, uh, I did. Uh, part of what we did in the summer uh, was vacation Bible school at the church that I went to. And uh, so VBS was a big, uh, big thing for us. Um, there was a lot of crazy stuff that happened in VBS. I, I like grew up at the church in so many ways. And so I knew all the places to hide. Like if you wanted to go somewhere, uh, you knew where to hide to beat everybody else there. Or if you didn't want to go somewhere, you knew where you could go hide so that they wouldn't find you. So that, anyway, that was kind of, I think uh, there were lots of fun games. We played kickball, all sorts of things that happened there. Uh, one of the games that we played um, at, as at Vacation Bible School, which by the way, we're having in July. I hope you, you and your kids are signed. But one of the games that we played, here's a picture of it right here. And I just want to bring back nostalgia here. Anybody know what this is? Red Rover. Now, for some of you um, kids in the room, I don't know that uh, you've ever played Red Rover before because lawsuits are plenty these days, you know? <laughs> but back in our day, let me tell you. Uh, so if you're not familiar with Red Rover, you would get, uh, you pick up two teams, kids would line up, they'd hold hands, and, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you hoped you liked the person who was next to you that you were holding hands with. And then we would say, like this right here, Red Rover, Red Rover, uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, let little Johnny come over. And little Johnny would pick out what he thought was going to be the weak spot. And he'd just come hauling tail as fast as he could. And he'd try to hit the junction right there. Uh, and, and break. And if, if you're not familiar, uh, if, if uh, the hands broke, then little Johnny got to take somebody back with them. And if they held, then little Johnny was now officially on our team. And what the coolest part was none of that though. The coolest part was little Johnny come running and then like he'd hit and, you know, maybe flip over. Maybe break a collarbone. Maybe there's an Ola involved. Maybe somebody went to the hospital and nobody got sued. I mean, this is just what happens when you play Red Rover. That was part, part, part of vacation Bible school. <laughs> but we also took a lot of other stuff away from vacation, from VBS. Um, and one of the things that consistently was taught at the place where I grew up uh, was uh, every year we encountered this particular verse that we're going to look at today. It is the most famous verse in the Bible in what is the most famous conversation in the Bible. It's John chapter 3, verse 16. A little context here. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And uh, Nicodemus is a, a religious leader. And he, um, he is a, a, a man who has uh, questions. And as we said last week, he's kind of struggling towards the faith. And Jesus is consistently representing this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you can't count on your pedigree and you can't count on your performance. You cannot count on where you came from or how you think that you're doing right now. What has to happen is you must be born again. There has to be a power from outside of you, uh, or uh, some people translate it this way, from above that brings something to bear on your life, so much so that when it's done, like when it meets you, it is, it is like so uh, uh, drastic that it's not you amended, it's not you 2.0, it's not you with the latest software update, it is a completely different you. You must be born again. So in John chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus ends his, this little section of the conversation with Nicodemus this way. Um, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
that whoever uh, believes in him may have eternal life. And the, the context of what he's saying there is this story from the book of Numbers where uh, these snakes uh, came into the camp as part of a plague. Um, and, and Moses had to make a, a snake, a bronze snake, and put it up on a kind of a standard, set it up high. And everybody who looked up at, uh, at the snake there um, was cured uh, of that curse. Jesus is saying, I'm going to become the snake. I'm going to be lifted up. And people who look at me, they will have life. So here we get to now John three sixteen. Why is this? Well, it's because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Uh, that word judgment error is the same word for co- condemnation that he's been using. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because, uh, excuse me, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, um, you know what that happens? Uh, they hate the light. They do not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may clearly see that his works have been carried out in God. So today I want to talk about the surprise, some, a couple of surprises um, in this conversation that tell us about the surprising nature of the love of God. If you grew up around church like I did, maybe, just maybe, you think to yourself, hey man, this is like so familiar What I'm praying for you and for me is that the surprises that we see here in the text would break through whatever's in us so that we catch it fresh too. We're going to come to the end of this uh, sermon here in a few minutes. We're going to celebrate communion. And it is a reminder of just how much Jesus has loved us. And so let's talk about the surprises here. Um, There's three of them. Uh, The first one is the object. Uh, One of the surprises in uh, this text is the object of God's love. Look at what he says. For God so loved, and then the next couple of words are what? The world. He loves the world. Uh, What in the, I mean, like, what in the world does that mean? That he loves the world? Like, what, is, what does it mean? Um, well, it, it means that uh, the Greek word is cosmos. It's all sorts of folks in all sorts of situations and all, in every station of life. Like high, low, up, down, good, bad, trending right, trending po- uh, poorly, whatever it may be. All kinds of people in all kinds of stations in all kinds of situations. This is the world that he loves. And I'll just give it to you this way. Um, uh, um, we'll just take some guesses here, a little audience participation. Okay, so depending upon who you ask... And I don't know where the experts come up with this number, but here they are. Uh, depending upon who you ask, there's kind of a, a, a number that they say, this number of people have ever lived in the history of the world, okay? So, so, so you just think about how many people have ever lived in the history of humanity. And so, and I'll just tell you, it starts with a B, okay? So I'll just give, that, give you that hint over there. Um, and so we'll take a guess from this section over here. Uh, how many people have ever lived in the history of the world? How many? 14 billion, okay. This section. Don't make me call on you. I had to do that in the 830 service. 20 billion. Okay, that's what I heard first. I'm sorry, I don't know who else weighed in here. This section, you got a guess? 110 billion. 109 billion. The problem is, is that 
um, her mom was in the first service. And so the answer is from the experts, 109 billion people. It's what they estimate have lived in the history of humanity. I don't know how they counted them all, but here's where we are. This is the point. 109 billion people. Some of them were awesome. Some of them, not so much. Whole range in the middle, right? God has loved every single one of them. 109 billion people, and he has loved every single one. There is not a person that we meet that this does not apply to. God so loved the world. And that is profoundly surprising, particularly to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus is like, I, I, I mean, he's a religious person who's kind of sectarian and kind of uh, uh, keeps his circle pretty tight. God, I know that you love us. That, that's what he would say. Oh, so God so loved us, me, uh, like our people, the people who are like me. God so loved us. The problem is not that, I mean, that is true, but it's truncated. It is true, but it's too small. It's myopic. It's not just that God loved us, like that section over there. You could absolutely say, God so loved us. It'd be true, but it's too small of a story. It is that God so loved the world. That's the thing. That's the thing. And so when it comes to this, the Jewish folks, the religious people of the day, they had no problem believing that God loved them, but the world? Come on. Are you serious? So much so we can even find ourselves offended that God loves those people. This is the story of Jonah. Um, I, I don't know if you know this or not. Jonah actually has four chapters in the Bible because the, the way the story gets told in most kids' books, it's only three, right? Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, I ain't going to Nineveh. Get swallowed by the fish. Oh, chapter two, get spit out. Oh, goes to preach in Nineveh. Chapter three, oh, cool things are happening in Nineveh. Amen. The problem is that's only three chapters. Chapter four, Jonah gets mad, goes outside of the city, crosses his arms and stands there. He's like, when are you going to destroy him by fire, God? Hmm? He gets so angry that he says, God asks him like, bro, you okay down there? You having a minute? What's the, what's the thing? Oh, I'm angry, God. I'm angry enough to die. Jonah says to God, I would rather die than live in a world where you would actually love these people. I know nobody's ever felt like that before, but Jonah did. We even find ourselves offended at times that God loves them, whoever them is. But the surprising thing that God loves the world means that all kinds of people in all kinds of situations and in all kinds of stations of life, they are loved by God. And we get the opportunity to do the same thing. The second part of this is that the world that God loves is a little bit jacked up. Look at verse 18. We'll skip. We'll come back to 16 and 17 in a second. But look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. The, the world operates like the normal operating system of the world is under the umbrella of judgment and condemnation. It is broken, folks. And God's not up, up, uh, up in heaven looking down going, yeah, well, I mean, it's okay. A little tweak here, a little tweak. No, no, he knows that it's broken. 
The state of condemnation is such that we, as a people, have turned away from God, uh, rejected Him, rejected His law, rejected what's good, rejected what's true, rejected what's right, and turned to the things that we think are right and true. This is the teaching of the Bible. So again, one of those uh, vacation Bible school uh, verses that comes along, Romans three twenty three. for how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? What's the word that's missing there? How many? For all, all have sinned. This is the teaching of the Bible. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then just three chapters later, verse uh, 623, um, and the wages of that sin, that is death. That is death. And so the, the, the umbrella of judgment that hangs over um, this world in its brokenness and sinfulness, listen, that is the biblical foundation. But it's not as if we have to be biblical scholars to understand that. All we have to do is look around the world and go, boy, howdy, this place is messed up. It is under the kind of condemnation that says we have no uh, kind of uh, um, a ruling guide and therefore everybody's kind of doing their own thing and the chaos um, and catastrophes that follow are logical. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And people say, well, if it's by nature, then why am I accountable? Like, I'm born this way. Here's the thing. It is not a physical problem that has put us in this place of condemnation. It is a moral problem. We have rejected God. That's the issue. And that's why the world exists in a state of condemnation. But here's the thing. God loves the world. So it's not just... Uh, the world as he as we wish it would be that he loves it is the world as it is the state uh, under this statement uh, this idea of of condemnation and of judgment and lastly verse 19 and this is the judgment so this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and then look at this next phrase people loved the darkness we didn't just reject god and then go dang we made a mistake we loved it So the world that God loves is broad, 109 billion people crazy. The world that God loves is in in this state of condemnation and judgment. And the world that God loves is filled with people who love the darkness. That's that's the problem. And the obfuscation um, that, that we try to hide here, it will not hide the deeds that we do. Everything is going to be exposed. That's what he says, the, though you, uh, the one who does wicked things, verse 20, hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But here's the deal, they will be exposed. But bigger than just our actions that will be exposed, the, the um, condemnation that is ours and, and the, the uh, way that we love the darkness, it's our heart that gets exposed. This is our issue. And God loves the people who love the darkness. That is a surprise when it comes to how God loves. To to be clear, because I I don't want us in suburban life to miss this here. To to be clear, um, I mean, we we think like the the last few parts of the Ten Commandments, you know, like don't lie, don't commit adultery, uh, don't, don't steal some stuff, like don't murder anybody. We, th- we think that stuff is what we're talking about here. Like, people who do that, they are the lovers of darkness. They're bad. Ugh. Again, it's not just their deeds. It's the state of their hearts. Because um, people who love darkness some kind, sometimes can take what is good and give it a place of significance that it does not deserve. Sometimes they take money or pleasure or uh, sexuality 
or uh, a relationship or knowledge or physical prowess and power or a position or uh, uh, influence or the people that they know or any number of other things. They take those things and they go, you know what? I'm making you my functional God. I believe that if I give all of my allegiance and all of my affection to you, you are going to be the thing that saves me. When we talk about lovers of darkness, don't just think, oh, all the bad people doing all the bad things. Let's talk about what's going on inside of us because it's in our hearts that those idols get created. It's in our hearts where we take the good and put it at a place of significance that it does not deserve. And then we learn to base our identity around it. And when that thing gets shaken, our world goes crazy. When we talk about the world, the world as a lovers of dark, filled with lovers of darkness, that's also what we're talking about. And I want you to hear me say this morning, God loves that world. He loves that world. How, how does he love that world? Like, how is this possible? Well, this is the second surprise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The, the intensity with which God loves the world is reflected in, his, in, is reflected in Jesus. Jesus is how he loves this world. It shows the commitment that he has. God so loved the world. I, I don't know if you kind of have space for that today, but like, I don't know, like, Say it this way. Think about, think about the moment in your life where you just think, gosh, that person really loves me. And then like, as best you can, jack that sucker up and you'll start to get just the smallest little sense of the intensity with which God loves the world with which God loves you. Jesus is how he loves this world. It shows his commitment, but it also shows his strategy because when he says, for God so loved the world, the, the word that gets translated there can also be translated like, it, like, like this, like in this way. This is how God loves the world in Jesus. Uh, wh- what does that mean? Well, it means that he was sent to us. He was sent, God brought Jesus to us. Um, he's the one speaking here, but also he was sacrificed for us. Remember back in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, um, that those who believe in him could have eternal life. His son was sent and his son was sacrificed. This is how God has loved the world and how intensely he loves the world. The word that gets translated there for God. So loved is the Greek word agape. Again, if you've been around church, maybe you've heard this before, but basically, um, there's kind of some descriptions around that word. It is selfless and it is sacrificial. And then it's not just selfless and sacrificial. It goes to work, but to will and to work for the ultimate good of the beloved. A selfless and sacrificial love that wills and works for the good of the beloved. It, just, it desires the best, the ultimate good for the person that it loves, but also it goes to work to accomplish that on their behalf. This is what it means to love as God loves, to be selfless, to be sacrificial, 
Um, to, to, to desire and, and then ultimately to do what is the ultimate good of the beloved. It is not just affection. It is not just loyalty. It is not just a bond. It draws from a very, very deep place in the, uh, in the character of God. And it flows out of him to us and then flows through us to others. So if you want to measure the love that God has for you, do not look at your bank account. Do not look at your status. Do not look at the health of your family. Do not look whether your car is working as it's supposed to, or you got the job or didn't get the job that you thought you should, uh, or hoped you never got before. Um, Do not look at your current situation. Do not look at how you're feeling. Do not look at how you woke up and thought, oh, huh, I guess the sun's shining today. It's going to be okay. Do not look at any of that stuff. If you want to measure the love of God, toward you, the, theme, the, the affection that he has for you, you measure the love of God by looking at Jesus. John, in his um, letter, says it this way, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how he showed up. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. The offering for our sins. If you want to know just how much God loves you. And the intensity with which he loves you. You look at Jesus. Get past all the other stuff. Push all the other things aside. Ask God for the kind of fresh eyes, for the space in your soul that says, God, I want to know just how much I am your beloved. And he will say, on my hand is written out your name. And right next to where your name has been tattooed are the scars that prove just how intensely I love you. The last surprise is the purpose with which he loves us. And that is in verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should, ha- uh, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The purpose is that Jesus is on a rescue mission. He wants to save us. The surprise of the love of God is you need rescuing, and guess what? He's going to rescue you. This is why Jesus has come. The world is already condemned, so why even mention it here? God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world. Yeah, the world's already broken. We get that. So why even mention that here? Why? Because uh, some of us live with a concept that is not the God of the Bible, but looks a little bit more like Zeus. Big scary guy, long beard, lightning bolt. Step out of line. Please step out of line. Please. Come on. Come on. Step out of line. Pah! We live with the idea, we live with the idea um, that, that he is ready, he is ready um, to, to get at us. That, and and our, our kind of haunting questions are, how do I get this God off my back or how do I keep him on my side? Instead, the questions that we can live with when we put our trust in Jesus and understand the love that he has for us, the questions that we can live with, or, or not questions, but statements, that I, before I came on the scene, I was already loved. 
And, and because Jesus has done this for me and I trust him, there is nothing that is going to separate me from his love. Nothing. Jesus says this because we've got Zeus in the background. But you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about getting God off your back or on your side. Jesus has done it. Jesus rescues us. His his rescue mission is twofold. Number one, he rescues us from destruction so that everyone who believes in him, verse 16, should not perish. The word there is for destruction. Had a conversation this week with a guy I've been sharing the gospel with for years now. And and we were chit-chat talking and uh, just talking about career and life and working and, and, you know, trying to do best for our family. He says, hey, so if you like died right here and just laid out on the floor, your family would be okay? I'm like, I don't know. Ask them. I don't know. Maybe they'd be happy for all. Like, what do you mean? So we talked about that for a minute. And I said, but the bigger thing is, is, is that if I died right now, like my body went cold here on the floor, I would still be living. I would. Because my body may quit, but I don't have to perish and be destroyed. And I said, listen, my hope for you is that Jesus will open your eyes to see that you don't have to be destroyed either. Your body could quit. And a hundred years from now, you and I will still be talking about this kind of stuff because we'll both be alive. We do not have to be destroyed. And secondly, we, um, he rescues us not just from something, from destruction, but also for eternal life. Um, Excuse me, for God did not send his son, but, so at the end of verse 16, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That life that he offers us is a life, yes, yes, it lasts forever. That's part of what eternal life means, is that it's indestructible even by death. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, um, those who put their trust in Jesus will not be destroyed and will still very much be alive. But it's more than that. It's not just a life that has a quantity. It's a life in this moment that has a quality to it. It is a life in this moment that is marked by, stained by the weight of eternity. And it's a transformational, sometimes it's slow. Like with Nicodemus, he shows up, by the way, two other times in the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, verse 50 where uh, there's a bit of a, uh, a tussle about who Jesus is. And Nicodemus is like, hey, man, let's slow our roll. See if God's doing something. And they're like, ah, we hate you, Nicodemus. And then he shows up in 19, verse 39, chapter 13, uh, chapter 19, verse 39. Because there's two dudes who showed up um, at the cross of Jesus to take his body down. One of them was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He, Jesus borrowed his tomb. And because of Jesus, every tomb for a Christian is borrowed. Joseph of Arimathea, and the second one, Nicodemus. He showed up, folks. It is a eternal life. Yes, it's a life that lasts, but also it's a life that is marked by the weight of eternity. And the love that God has for us to save us is the kind of transformational power that changes us, that moves us. It is a life that is ours by faith. And so he says um, uh, in the middle of verse 16, everyone who believes in him. It's a funny little construction in the original language. It, you, you had this moment 
you come in from, I don't know, yard work or a hard day's work or whatever it may be, and you're like radar locked on your easy chair. Boop, 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 boop. And you get there and you're like, you just settle in. And you're like, oh. That's the idea. You just plant yourself in who Jesus is and what he has done. And you rest in him. How can you do that? Well, remember the game, Red Rover, Red Rover? Sin and death, they had their hands clasped. And Jesus came trucking through. And he broke the bond of sin and death and then looked at you and said, I want you on my team. You come to my side. You don't have to be a part of that anymore. You can come with me. And we come to communion to remind ourselves that sin and death are done in Jesus. We come to remind ourselves that the love that God has for the world is also personal to me. The love that he demonstrated is demonstrated for me. We come to remind ourselves that Jesus has died, yes, and that he has risen, amen. We come to communion to remember that Jesus is the one who came to save us. So if you need to uh, fold your stuff up or put your stuff up and kind of set it to the side and just take a minute where you kind of settle in here, you go ahead and do so. And deacons, if you're going to serve this morning, would you make your way forward, please? The night before Jesus went to the cross, he was um, with his followers in a room. He took bread and he broke it and he passed it around to him and said, this is my body which is broken for you. You need to eat and you need to remember. So we're going to eat here in just a moment. We're going to remember. What are we going to remember? The brokenness that we deserved fell on Jesus. The shame that we deserved fell on him. And because it fell on him, you and I can be made whole. That's the story is that you and I could be made whole. And then we're going to take this cup. Jesus took a cup, he passed it around, and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which has been shed for you. You need to drink and you need to remember. And so we're going to drink and we're going to remember. What are we going to remember? We're going to remember that I don't have to pay for my sins. Jesus has done so. I don't have to try to make it up to God. Jesus has done so. The love of God has been given for us in Jesus. And we can rest in Anybody who's a follower of Jesus is welcome to participate with us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll um, celebrate communion. Uh, Father, please make this very clear and very fresh and very real. And Holy Spirit, take the gospel, apply it to us today in this moment. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. You didn't send, Father, the Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world might be saved. So make it real for us now. That's what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.